2013. And uh, I've been um, teaching. And let's get this uh, row of lights off so people can see my um, pictures, if you would. Um, nope, that one, this one back here. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. All right, so uh, we've been talking about uh, the King James and why we are committed to uh, use the exclusive use of the King James Version. And uh, so I'm going to go into tonight. So I, I, we went through our statement of faith in depth um, for two weeks. And then the second section is going to be a lot more technical. We're going to take a look at uh, the manuscript tradition and uh, what uh, manuscripts there are available to us. And uh, we're going to dig into that. So tonight... You know, it's honestly, uh, it's going to be about the Bible. It's not going to be a lot of Bible, um, but a lot of explanation of um, what we have. A lot of discoveries uh, that have been made since the mid-1800s and really an explosion of manuscripts that have been discovered um, since about the 1930s. So in about less than 100 years, really. Uh, but... All that discovery has brought with it a lot of controversy about the words of God. And uh, as I've already said, uh, but I'll re restate it to you, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so what the church has used and maintained and passed from generation to generation through faithful preaching of the word of God and uh, faithful believing on the part of the people receiving the word, Hiding it in our hearts, meditating on it, dwelling on it, teaching it to our children, passing it down. This is the method that God gave for the preservation of his word. This is clear to us in scripture, and we're going to see it even more um, in the weeks ahead. So, uh, discoveries. There was a few, uh, few months ago um, in Sunday school class, and I said something about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and one of the ladies who visits or attends on Sunday mornings raised her hand, and she said like this really um, weird question. She said, you don't believe in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, I hadn't said that. First of all, I, I didn't say that. I don't know what there is not to believe in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Kumara got to visit the place where they were found. All kinds of um, manuscripts of scripture that were kept there and preserved because of the climate able to be preserved over all these years or um, after all these years. There's nothing not to believe in. I told her though, I don't believe that archeological discoveries should require us to re-examine the authenticity of the words that we have. There's no reason to say that manuscripts are found in caves in some spot in, in the Middle East um, that turn out to be the Bible should make us have to go back and reevaluate whether or not the words are the words. We can be confident. In, if, if you believe that, then you have to believe that 100 years ago or 200 years ago, well, for the last 500 years, people have been using the wrong words and believed that they were using the right words. 
And that shows zero confidence in God, in God's power to keep his words. There are so many ways uh, that the authenticity of the word of God, and particularly the King James Bible, is um, undermined, and people seek to undermine it in so many ways. And um, we can be sure that people, Christians, believers, have been preaching the true word of God for all these years, and that we have it to this day, and there's not a reason for us uh, to go in and say, you know, to reevaluate, reexamine whether those are the right words or not. So I'm going to start with 1 Thessalonians 2.13 as a reminder to you of God's method for preservation. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, the Bible says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word receive is a significant word in this regard, that this is what God's people do. God's, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me. Um, this is, um, and I think I misquoted that, but, um, but the point is that God's people recognize the voice of God in the word of God, and they receive that. And so what believers have been receiving over generations, over hundreds of years, we can also be confident in. All right, let's pray and we'll uh, get into this. Lord, thank you that uh, we have your word, that we can be confident in the word that we have. I pray that you would increase that confidence, that um, we would be uh, reliant on the words that you've given us. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord, also, um, that we would desire to understand the issue for the main reason that we will be more sure in our own position um, and more comfortable with it and uh, prepare against the many ways that our position is under assault in this day. And I pray that uh, you would help us and enable us, Lord, to uh, discern in these things, that you give us wisdom. And, uh, and then, Lord, I pray that tonight's look would be an honest look at the word and at the words and at the manuscripts as well, and that we would draw right conclusions uh, based on truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. <coughs> Daniel Wallace is um, probably the foremost Greek, New Testament Greek scholar of this day, also the foremost textual critic of our day. He's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he has done extensive work on the text issue. Uh, he started a website, it's um, CSNTM. Um, he had a funny way of helping you remember it. CS like C.S. Lewis and NTM like in the Wizard of Oz, NTM, NTM, like that. Um, but that's the website. It stands for, um, oh boy, um, man, I had that in my head too. And I don't have my phone, so I can't Google it to, to see. But um, it's, anyway, uh, it catalogs all of the manuscripts 
and he's traveled all over the world to the various libraries where these manuscripts are kept. Um, and you can look at digital images, and I have a few of them um, in my PowerPoint here. But you can look at digital images of these texts of scripture um, that have been discovered, and uh, you can read them, examine them for yourself. You can zoom in, and uh, you can, if you know how to read Greek, you can translate it, you can see it um, for yourself so that you'll see what is there. And uh, it really is a valuable resource, I have to say that. But I disagree with Daniel Wallace on a number of significant issues as well. And, um, and I understand that he's the scholar, but you know, it's not unusual that we would disagree with the scholars uh, either. And Daniel Wallace in particular argues that canon consciousness took about three centuries to emerge. That Christians didn't immediately recognize the writings of the New Testament as scripture, especially, he said, the letters of Paul. He didn't, the Christians didn't immediately recognize as scripture. Now this comes from his biblical training course, which is available online and which I've been taking as a free course. Um, but this is a transcript from that. He said these writings were authoritative, but it wasn't immediately thought of as the New Testament as such. No, but they did recognize that this was a letter from Paul. We know that he's an apostle, and we recognize that his authority is very high, but is it on the level of the Old Testament prophets? It took some time for them to embrace this. So this canon consciousness is something that slowly emerged. And we know that the Gospels were accepted as Scripture earlier on, probably before the end of the first century. Paul's letters were accepted as authoritative and later as Scripture. By the end of the second century, there were about 21 books that were recognized as authoritative and valid for us in worship services. So the consciousness emergence lasted for about three centuries. As soon as people began, began to think of it as Scripture, they began to be more careful in copying Scripture. He's, I'm adding that, in copying Scripture. And yet there was a new kind of textual variant precisely because they now recognized it as scripture. So his argument is that in the first couple of centuries of the New Testament, that believers were not careful in copying because they did not realize that it was scripture. And not until uh, around, well, it would be around the time of the church councils, when the canon of scripture was um, established by the church, is not really established, I, that's not the right word, but when the churches identified and recognized what the canon was uh, and, and said what it was officially, spoke officially on it, uh, that that's when they began to be more careful in their copying. So initially, he argues that uh, the copying was somewhat haphazard because they didn't realize that they had scripture. So <clears throat> he's saying that the cause of early textual variance 
had more to do with carelessness because New Testament believers didn't realize they were handling Scripture. Then Wallace says that errors of piety. So initially, in the first, say, the first hundred years, remember that uh, the closing, the, the canon did not close. The canon of the New Testament was written over throughout the first century. Uh, and in fact, I believe that John wrote his gospel and John wrote his epistles uh, around 80 or 90 AD. So this was many years uh, have passed even since Christ. So then in the, um, in the second century, uh, after 100 AD, he's arguing that during all that time, uh, there was careless copying and the errors in the text and the manuscripts were caused by carelessness. And then he thinks that around uh, the third or fourth century, somewhere in there, uh, when they began to recognize that this is scripture, then they became more careful, but he says there became errors of piety as well because they would try to harmonize the text. They would think, they would assume that the last scribe didn't get it quite right, and so they would make corrections in the manuscript. Now certainly um, there are manuscripts where you can see uh, corrections being made in the manuscript. But we'll talk about that in a little bit now because I don't think that that helps his case at all, all right? Is there good reason to believe this? Is there re good reason to believe that the earliest manuscripts were um, just careless mistakes? And then after that, now let uh, me back up and say that 5,800 manuscripts of scripture, somewhere around there, a little bit more than that, uh, that are available to us today that have been discovered. And out of 5,800, no two of them are identical. No two of them are exactly alike. Um, they, there are variants in all of them, uh, everywhere. But remember, uh, we have the advantage of photocopying, and so we're able to make perfect copies now without human error. Before that, there was a lot of writing. It was all handwritten, and so there were a variety of um, reasons why there might be variants in that. But I'd like to argue that what Wallace is arguing here is conjecture. Uh, and I would like to argue it, first of all, from the textual evidence, then from the scriptural evidence, and then from the development of the canon itself. I believe uh, that the Bible answers Daniel Wallace's claim, and that the Bible makes it absolutely certain that the early church, the New Testament believers, before the New Testament was completed. That believers knew that they had the Word of God. They knew that what the Apostle Paul and what the Apostle Peter and what the Apostle John were writing was Scripture and that they handled it as such from the beginning. I believe that we can show that from the Bible itself and also from the development of the canon itself, the way the canon itself developed. Now, I'm going to deal with those two things in a later lesson. Right now, tonight, I'm going to show you a few things about the text of Scripture itself. I want to kind of put two things together. What Wallace says 
here, his claim of um, an emerging canon consciousness that took a couple centuries. And I want to see if the textual evidence would even allow us to know that. But also, I want to do that because I want to also show you some things about the manuscript traditions and the transmission of the text itself. And then we'll get into the scriptural evidence for an immediate embrace of the New Testament as scripture by the New Testament believers in the early New Testament church. But that's, like I said, we'll deal with that in a later lesson. This time, we're going to look at textual evidence. And I want to show you, first of all, the textual evidence does not point to Wallace's idea of an emerging canon consciousness, okay? So that might be like, I hope this is not killing you all. You worked hard all week, you're tired, and you come in and we start talking about emerging <coughs> canon consciousness. And, oh man, that's a mouthful, Pastor. I'm trying to swallow, I'm gulping, but uh, I gotta chew a little, it's thick. All right, <clears throat> so let me uh, make sure my little thing is going to work. Yep, all right. Uh, so we have 11 manuscripts from the second century. 11 manuscripts from the second century. Eight of them are just a single fragment or a single leaf, okay, a single leaf, like, like a page, okay, and, and many of these uh, copies are on what you call a codex, or in what you call a codex, which is the earliest form of a book. They were bound on one side, usually with thread, they were sewn on one side, and so you had this book, all right, so many of these, well, eight out of 11 are a single fragment or a single leaf, a page, and that's all. <clears throat> the oldest fragment of a Greek manuscript is um, the John Ryland's Library Papyrus. Sorry, I went the wrong way. All right? Now, this is the earliest known manuscript of scripture, Ryland's Library Papyrus, it's called, it, it's categorized, and so they have a, a whole system that they've developed for numbering these so that you can identify the various manuscripts out of 5,800. You've got to have a system for tracking them and keep, keeping track. So this is known as P52, or Papyrus 52, okay? so. Um, it dates back, it may be, it's debated, but it, it certainly is 2nd century. Um, <clears throat> it's mo most likely, I believe they think that it's from the year 125 or somewhere in that vicinity. They can't give an exact date, of course, because they didn't put dates on their papers. Um, but uh, it... You know, there's some debate, it may be as late as 190, but somewhere in there, 120, it's possible. 125, that would be within 30 to 40 years of John writing his gospel. And this John Ryland papyrus 
uh, is of the Gospel of John. Now, this is not even, this is part of a verse. It's um, it's almost impossible for you to see it, but right, when when my wife and I visited Qumran, I know some of you have been there as well. Uh, they would have like a double pane of glass, now probably like four panes of glass thick, and they would have it framed, and there would be just a tiny, tiny little microscopic um, fragment inside of there, and you could see the writing. So you can see the writing on this as well. It's actually on there bigger than what it would be. You know, objects in mirror are larger than they, whatever, they're smaller than the, the fragments are smaller than that. They're very small, um, but it is a harsh part of a verse from the Gospel of John. Now, this fragment was discovered in Egypt around 1920. Uh, it was not recognized as a New Testament fragment until 1934, so 14 years. Uh, the word order seems to be Alexandrian. The, um, certainly the textual critics claim that it is an Alexandrian word order. I'll just tell you that I, I examined it myself and compared, um, and it really, the words are the same. If, if anything, they're reversed, but it has the same words in it. Uh, so it really is just word order uh, that they're uh, arguing about. It's really hard to establish this is Alexandrian from such a small fragment, but it would make sense that it would be Alexandrian because it was found in Egypt, and that's where uh, the Alexandrian library was and, and uh, all of that. All right, Papyrus 963. Um, Papyrus 963, that's not this. Papyrus 963 has 55 leaves, but that particular papyrus is the Septuagint of Numbers and Deuteronomy. This, what I have up on the board, is P66. It was discovered in 1952. It has 75 identifiable folios along with numerous fragments of the Gospels, including a nearly complete copy of the Gospel of John. You can see um, that this is a whole book. It's an ancient book, um, but it's the whole thing uh, there. And so, and that's one of the earliest and one of the uh, most significant discoveries uh, of a record of the gospel. It also was discovered in Egypt. It is also Alexandrian. <clears throat> P46. This is a, a page, and, and it's interesting. Let me see if I've got, um, oh yeah, okay. So do you see this seam here? And that's how the codex would be sewn together. So you can, you can kind of see and visualize with that what Papyrus 46 um, would look like. P46 has 86 leaves that include most of Paul's epistles. So if we were going to establish Wallace's theory that most of the mistakes in the early manuscripts were mistakes of um, carelessness, these two, 
uh, P66 and P46 would be the two that we would need to reference there. Now, P46 is considered to be the oldest manuscript of the Greek New Testament, dating from 200 AD. Daniel Wallace calls it the prize of three, P45, P46, P47. Chester Beatty acquired this manuscript from an antiquities dealer in Cairo, Egypt in 1930. They're housed at the Chester Beatty Library, which is in Dublin, Ireland. The manuscripts that survived from this long ago, really all of them came from Alexandria. And so they're considered to be Alexandrian, of course, that's obvious. And the text of these Alexandrian manuscripts differs significantly from the text of the TR. And this is partly what um, the controversy is about. It's over the Alexandrian in the place of the Alexandrian manuscript in Scripture. Thus, should we consider the Alexandrian manuscript? Because we have these that we can use as a reference point um, to see what was different. Now, again, I'm going to get back to, I'm going to come back to the Alexandrian text in a little bit, but I want to see this. I want you to see this. <clears throat> because of the significant differences between the Alexandrian text and the Textus Receptus, the received text, which our King James Bible is translated from, uh, New Testament text scholars have assumed that this means that the text of the TR is corrupt, that the earliest manuscripts contain the authentic words, and that we need to restore those words. All right, so that's the second century. We want to come into the third century and third century manuscripts. We have significantly more, all right? Um, <clears throat> 66 Greek manuscripts from the third century. Four of them are copies of the Septuagint, so now the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 53 of them are fragments, single fragments, or I think there's one, P115, that is 26 fragments. <clears throat> Nine of them are substantial enough to allow for examination. Uh, actually, I think it's less. I think I narrowed that down because there was some overlap between uh, second century and third century. But uh, P45, there are 60 leaves of P45. P47, there are 10 leaves. P72, there are 95 leaves. P75, there are 50 leaves. P77, there is one leaf. And then GA0162, there is one leaf. Now, <clears throat> GA, the, the, um, the zero numbers are unctuals or Magiscule. So, so some of these, uh, at a certain era, the copyist would copy in all capital letters uh, from the Greek. And so the, uh, they call those unctuals or uh, majuscules. And so the GAs are those, um, starting with a zero. Uh, GA0189 has two leaves. GA 0212 has one leaf, GA 0220 has one leaf, all right? Now Wallace's claim is about the Pauline epistles and the Catholic epistles, as he argues that uh, the, the Gospels were accepted as canon, as scripture, immediately or nearly immediately 
Uh, but the Pauline and the um, pastoral epistles, the Catholic epistles, which is the not Catholic Church, uh, but the general epistles, that's the, the word for them. Um, so his, his claim is that those letters from the apostles uh, were not immediately accepted, that it took a couple of hundred years for there to be a canon consciousness. Okay, so uh, with that in mind, I want to just go through and say which of these uh, manuscripts we could use in order to evaluate or to test Daniel Wallace's theory here. P66, P75, P77 are old Gospels. Okay, so he's saying that those were accepted immediately. P45 includes the Gospels and Acts. Uh, GA0162 covers a portion of John. Um, that's one leaf. GA0212 is Tatian's Diatessaron, which is an early harmony of the gospel. Maybe you've seen this before. Uh, probably the mo most famous harmony of the gospel today in modern use, if it's still printed, is Baker's harmony of the gospel. Basically a harmony of the gospel, at least the modern kind, uh, will take and put Matthew, Mark, Luke in columns all on the same page so that you can read uh, the different accounts side by side. And so, now, you know, I didn't dig into the diatessaron uh, easily enough or carefully enough to tell you if it's formatted that way or what the formatting is, but it was a very early harmony of the gospel. And then P47 is the oldest manuscript of the book of Revelation. That leaves us with three manuscripts from the third century that could be examined in light of Daniel Wallace's theory uh, of an emerging canon consciousness. GA0189 is one unctual, majuscule, one leaf of the book of Acts and one leaf of the Catholic epistles, the, the um, general epistles. GA0220 is one leaf of Paul at Romans chapter 4, verse 23 through 5, through chapter 5, verse 3, and then chapter 5 on the back side, chapter 5, verses 8 through 13. Um, I have that, yeah, that's unctual 0220, that's what it looks like there. So you can see that you're not going to get a complete picture out of that. That's another fragment um, right there. <clears throat> P72 is 95 leaves of Acts and the general epistles. Uh, P72, this is a page from P72. P72 is the earliest known manuscript of the epistles of Jude and 1st and 2nd Peter. Apart from, P78 is also a fragment copy of from Jude, but it just covers a very tiny part of uh, the Epistle of Jude. P72 was discovered in 1952. It is Alexandrian text, and it is housed at the Vatican 
library. All right, so that's it for those. Uh, okay, so let me just rehearse with you again. The claim is that for the first couple centuries, at least for the first century, that believers were careless and made careless mistakes because they didn't realize that they were handling scripture. All right? So to test that theory would require us to examine the manuscripts from that time. And there's really one relevant manuscript from that time, and that's um, this P, not P72. P72 is the only one that would really apply. Uh, the Unctual 0220 uh, really just covers such a tiny bit of Romans, uh, not even complete verses of Romans. And uh, so P72 would have to be the one we examine to find those careless mistakes. Um, and uh, of course, there, no doubt there are mistakes that are made. In fact, they have um, pointed out uh, sometimes copying, you know, when you're copying things, this happens, that you mix words or something like that. So errors in copy are not really what should dictate what we do, uh, what we accept as scripture as the word of God. So understanding that, but we just have this one example, really, to go off of, um, from the second century, P72. Um, again, from, I'm sorry, that's from the third century. From the second century, P66, um, which really, uh, I'm sorry, P46, which has Paul's epistles. So um, it would take a lot to establish that kind of thing and especially to uh, mark it as careless errors. All right, we have 53 fourth century manuscripts. Um, four of them are Septuagint, 45 of them are fragments and single leaves. Uh, so we have four codex from the fourth century, four uh, books, if you will, from the fourth century. Um, three of them are, two of them are very famous. One of them, maybe not as famous, um, and one of them is just two leaves. So the first one is uh, GA01, which is Codex Sinaiticus. The second one is GA03, which is Codex Vaticanus. GA032 is Codex Washingtonius. Washingtonianus. It's named because it's housed at the Smithsonian. And then GA0219 is two leaves. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are what I want to focus on, and they are the holy grail for textual criticism. Um, not surprisingly, the critical text moves closer to these with each new edition. I said in NA25, the Nestle Allen uh, 25th edition, uh, and then you have the 26th to 27th, that each one progressively gets closer to Sinaiticus Vaticanus um, than the one prior to it. Uh, so this is definitely 
uh, where they're heading. 28 is, I believe, in, even closer, and uh, I think 29 will be also, uh, which 29 is coming out soon. So let's take a look at these two manuscripts, and then I'll um, conclude. This is a copy of a page from Codex Vaticanus. It's named for the Vatican, where it has been kept since 1475 at least. That's the first time that they have record of it being kept there at the Vatican. So it's not surprising that the uh, translators of the King James would not have made use of it, though it was known at the time. It's interesting that Erasmus, who was a lifelong Roman Catholic, Erasmus, in his editions of the Greek New Testament, did not utilize Vaticanus. Um, he had visited Rome prior to collating his Greek New Testament, uh, but he did not um, borrow from Vaticanus. When Erasmus wrote his edition of the Greek New Testament, he did cause an uproar with it because he left out a portion of 1 John chapter 5. It's um, the infamous Johannine uh, comma. Um, there are three uh, that, hold on, let me look at it, and I'll tell you what it is. It's part, it's the second half of 1 John 5, and the first half of 1 John, I'm sorry, the second half of 1 John 5, 7, and the first half of 1 John 5, 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And then the first half of verse 8, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So the critical text says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. I'm sorry, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Okay, so it skips over from the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth. So it skips over that section, all right? And Erasmus left that section out of his Greek New Testament as well. There was an uproar about it. He did not include it in his second edition. He said after the second one, and there was the uproar that if you can show me that it's in there, uh, then I'll put it in. And um, so then he sent uh, a message to a friend of his who was at the Vatican and asked him if he would look at Vaticanus to see if it was there. And it is not there in Vaticanus either. So I just find it interesting that uh, Erasmus didn't consult it. He knew it was there. Um, it was the most famous copy, ancient copy of scripture. It no doubt tra traces back to around the fourth century um, with that. <clears throat> Little is known about the history of this text. Text scholars believe it came from the fourth century. Daniel Wallace suggests that it was kept at Caesarea in the sixth century. Um, it includes six apocryphal books, uh, and Daniel Wallace believes it's the most important document in the world. He said this, I personally think 
that this manuscript is actually our most important manuscript of the Bible and thus the most important document in the world, he said. Dean John Bragan, who was a great defender of the uh, TR, the traditional text in particular, Dean John Bragan said, Vaticanus comes to us without a history, without recommendation of any kind, except that of its antiquity. It bears traces of careless transcription in every page. The mistakes which the original transcriber made are of perpetual recurrence. Now, contrast that with Dirk Junking, who's the editor of the Tyndale House edition of the Greek New Testament, who said, like within the last four years, said when you're copying a text, you're going to make blunders. The scribe responsible for this one, for Vaticanus, hardly made any, he said. Hardly made any. So there's definitely a big conflict there between what Dean Bergon said and what this guy said here. Which one is the truth here? Well, John King seems to be the, in the minority in that viewpoint. James Snap has documented more than 120 errors in singular readings, readings that appear only in Vaticanus, that is. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke alone, not even, by the way, examining the entirety of the books, he just listed between Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8, and put it up and demonstrated what the errors were that were horrible kind of errors. He wasn't making an exhaustive list. So it's fair to say that Vatican, Vaticanus is a low-quality manuscript of the Bible. Now, if you're copying the Bible, the, the Greek New Testament, if you're copying it, you're going to want to copy it from the best quality that you have available, not from the worst quality or the lowest quality that you have available. And that is the approach that the early church took as well. Codex Sinaiticus Sina, Sina, was discovered by Logot Friedrich Constantin von Tischendorf. You may have heard Constantine von Tischendorf before. It was discovered at St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai in May of 1844. Did you visit there? Yeah. All right. Um, do they have an entrance? Can you get into it, or do you have to go up over the... Well, you can get inside and you can see that. Yeah. Um, for many years, it was just a thick wall, high wall, and there was no entrance, like you needed to be raised up through a basket or, or something like that uh, to get into this. It's a convent of the um, Greek Orthodox Church, very ancient convent there. <clears throat> Tischendorf said that he rescued the manuscript from the trash can where it was slated to be burned. It was at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is quoting him. I think I have the quote up here, but I don't think you're going to be able to see it. See it. Um, I've been skipping this. That's a, that's a picture of 
Sinaiticus. So I'll just leave that because you're not going to be able to read it anyway. It was at the foot of Mount Sinai in the convent of St. Catherine that I discovered the pearl of all my researches. In visiting the library of the monastery in the month of May, 1844, I perceived in the middle of the great hall a large and wide basket full of old parchments, and the librarian, who was a man of information, told me that two heaps of papers like these, moldered by time, had been already committed to the flames. What was my surprise to find amid this heap of papers a considerable number of sheets of a copy of the Old Testament in Greek, which seemed to me to be one of the most ancient that I had ever seen. The authorities of the convent allowed me to possess myself of a third of these parchments, or about 43 sheets, all the more readily as they were destined for the fire, but I could not get them to yield up possession of the remainder. The too lively satisfaction which I had displayed had aroused their suspicions as to the value of this manuscript. So Tischendorf um, is referring here to about 130 pages of Sinaiticus. The British Library has 694 pages of Sinaiticus in its collection. Fifteen years after that visit, Tischendorf returned to the convent and he said that on the afternoon of this day, I was taking a walk with the steward of the convent in the neighborhood, and as we returned toward sunset, he begged me to take some refreshment with him in his cell. Scarcely had he entered the room when, resuming our former subject of conversation, he said, and I too have read a Septuagint. That Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so saying, he took down from the corner of the room a bulky kind of volume wrapped up in a red cloth and laid it before me. I unrolled the cover and discovered to my great surprise not only those very fragments which 15 years before I had taken out of the basket, but also other parts of the Old Testament, the New Testament complete, and in addition, the epistle of Barnabas and a part of the pastor of Hermas. Those are apocryphal books. So, <clears throat> as a result of that, in Tischendorf's account, there, a lot of people will say that Sinaiticus was rescued from the burned mile, from the trash heap which is probably, it's partly true, certainly that's what he said, but not the whole manuscript, understand, because there's a lot more to the manuscript than what he rescued, or even what he saw. And probably it was only a copy, probably a worn out copy that they were burning and uh, eliminating, and um, they probably had done that regularly over the years, and copied it and so on. The bigger issue, because, you know, sometimes we latch on to something like that, and we say, you know, oh, it was headed for the burn pile, it was in the trash heap, you just rescued it out of the trash heap, and now people want to use it um, to correct the Bible. Okay, so, and, and I don't want to use Sinaiticus, but that's not the reason. So let's, let's talk about Sinaiticus itself, and I said a minute ago, that if you're copying, handwriting, copying scripture, you want a quality copy, a copy that you can be confident to copy from. All right, so, um, and so when it came to Sinaiticus, you're not dealing with a quality copy at all, not at all. I mean, 
Vaticanus um, is poor quality, for sure. But Sinaiticus is a whole other level. This, according to Tischendorf, on nearly every page of the manuscript, there are corrections and revisions done by 10 different people. He counted, <clears throat> this was his count, 14,800 alterations and corrections in the manuscript. 14,800 corrections and alterations. The New Testament, he said, is extremely unreliable. On many occasions, 10, 20, 30, 40 words are dropped. Letters, words, even whole sentences are frequently written twice over or begun and immediately canceled. That gross blunder whereby a clause is omitted because it happens to end in the same word as the clause proceeding occurs no less than 115 times in the New Testament. Even the official website for Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Sinaiticus Project website, says this, no other early manuscript of the Christian Bible has been so extensively corrected. A glance at the transcription will show just how common these corrections are. They're especially frequent in the Septuagint portion. They range in date from those made by the original scribes in the 4th century to ones made in the 12th century. They range from the alteration of a single letter to the insertion of whole sentences. All right, so Sinaiticus could not be considered a reliable standard for gauging or measuring whether or not the Greek New Testament uh, needs to be altered or corrected. Dean Bergon compared the readings between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. He also checked these manuscripts for particular readings or readings that are found only in that manuscript. In the Gospels alone, Vaticanus has 197 particular readings, while Sinaiticus has 443. A particular reading signifies one that is most definitely false. Manuscripts repeatedly <coughs> proven to have incorrect readings lose respectability. Thus, manuscripts boasting significant numbers of particular readings cannot be relied upon. All right, so this is the, the point that I'm quoting right there. But according to Herman Hosker, there are, without counting errors <clears throat> of ioticism, 3,036 textual variations between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus in the text of the Gospels alone. 3,000 differences, significant differences, in the text of the Gospels alone. So again, quoting, assuming that the same ratio of variance persists in the rest of the New Testament and doing the math, that's more than 3,434 additional variants for a total of more than 6,470 variants between them. There are 7,956 verses in the New Testament. That's an average of 0.81 variants per verse between Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Almost one variant in every verse there. There are therefore roughly four out of every five verses in one manuscript disagrees in at least one place with the other between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Dean Bergon said it is in fact easier to find two consecutive verses in which these two manuscripts differ the one from the other than two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. 
So, why go to all that trouble? Okay, so these are fourth century. Okay, okay so let's go back to Wallace's claim that prior to, while canon consciousness is emerging, there were careless mistakes. Then, after the settled, the church settled on the canon of scripture, then there were mistakes of piety, where they were correcting it, all right? But the manuscripts that you have available are not highly reliable manuscripts. You, you can perhaps say that the early Alexandrian from the second and third centuries, those early manuscripts, um, you could perhaps find careless errors in them. I'm, I'm sure that that happened, in fact, um, quite certain that whatever, you know, when you're copying, uh, you mix words up, sometimes you skip lines, things like that happen. But in the next copy, those things are going to be corrected. There's going to be something that you reference so that you're constantly fixing copyist errors. Copyist errors are not going to be um, maintained. They're not going to be upheld. The next person reading it is going to look at it and say something's wrong here. They're going to go see what the problem is and they're going to fix it. All right. So they're not persistent problems. So that is sometimes a claim that textual critics will make. But <clears throat> the other thing is to say then that the careless errors ended and now people are carrying handling the word of God more carefully. And so now we have these two shining examples the gold standard, according to textual criticism, for the New Testament of Scripture. And they are shabby, at the least, shabby manuscripts of Scripture, not what you would reference or, or use as a reference point whatsoever. It's really hard to justify, based on textual evidence, what Daniel Wallace is arguing here. First of all, scholars, including Kurt and Barbara Allen, have maintained that the overwhelming majority of variants in the text of the New Testament existed before the year 200. Um, <clears throat> and uh, in fact, so, so I can say this, that based on that then, did these errors persist? No, I believe that they were mainly corrected uh, as, the man, as people looked at it, saw it, I mean, it's evident when you're looking at it, if you're reading something that someone handwrites, you're gonna pick out if they missed something or wrote a word twice or something like that. You're gonna miss that, you're gonna see that. And that's a huge number of the variants anyway. It seems more likely that the problem is with the Alexandrian text itself. All right, and I'm saying this to you that the Alexandrian text suffered from shoddy copywork and from the influence of heretics also who emerged especially in Alexandria itself. And this is another element that people don't often consider, but the early heretics were in Alexandria, Egypt. Here are a couple of quotes I'll read you along those lines. The antiquity of these manuscripts is no indication of reliability because a prominent church father in Alexandria testified that manuscripts were already corrupt by the third century. Origen, the Alexandrian church father in the early third century, said this, 
The differences among the manuscripts of the Gospels have become great, either through the negligence of some copyists or through the perverse audacity of others. They either neglect to check over what they have transcribed or, in the process of checking, they lengthen or shorten as they please. Now this, that is according to Bruce Menzker, who is dead now but uh, was really probably the most famous uh, textual critic. All right? Now, Origen is speaking of the manuscripts of his location in Alexandria, Egypt. By an Alexandrian church father's own admission, manuscripts in Alexandria by 200 AD were already corrupt. Irenaeus in the second century, though not in Alexandria, made a similar admission on the state of corruption among New Testament manuscripts. Now that, Daniel Wallace says, Revelation was copied less often than any other book of the New Testament, and yet, Arrhenius admits that it was already corrupted within just a few decades of the writing of the Apocalypse. So, <clears throat> if what Wallace claims is true, then the question is, why would we insist on consulting those Alexandrian manuscripts to verify, to confirm, or to correct the TR? Textual critics will argue that um, there are no Byzantine manuscripts available prior to the 4th century. But really, the Byzantine Empire didn't really begin to emerge until around the 4th century. So, and that's where the TR grew out of the Byzantine manuscripts. And there is a transmission that you can see taking place. Okay, so I, I took a lot of time to go through and show you. I wanted to show you the manuscripts themselves, but also to kind of work through this problem, this issue. Um, were there significant corruptions in the Alexandrian text from the earliest time? Yes, there were, absolutely. Um, that's certain, that's confirmed, that's verified in what we looked at here. Um, those uh, partly were due to carelessness, no doubt, but that's in Alexandria. We would say that, um, and, and I would argue that in the Greek and Roman Empire itself, not the Byzantine, which is the Western Roman Empire, uh, that you have believers who are faithfully copying, and though we don't have any manuscripts from that time until after the fourth century, yet you also can see that they got that from somewhere. The Byzantine came from something. It came from somewhere. Um, most likely, what happened is that the believers in those regions, in, in Greece and Galatia and Ephesus, those places, were faithfully copying, faithfully preaching, faithfully giving, and then persecution came. And when the Romans came in to persecute, they destroyed the Bible. That was one of the main things they aimed at, was destruction of the, of the Word of God. And so those copies are destroyed, or at least they have not yet been discovered. It's possible now that they're there. Um, certainly there's been enough archaeology that you would think they would have covered, uncovered it, uh, but nonetheless, 